Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Eric Court, Associate Professor in the Department of Climate and Space Sciences and Engineering at the University of Michigan. Eric is one of the leading experts on methane emissions from the oil and gas industry and recently published a fascinating study looking at leaks coming from facilities in the Gulf of Mexico. We'll talk about what he found and how it squares with other research on methane emissions from the onshore oil and gas industry. We'll also take a step back and talk about the broader trends in global methane concentrations and try to understand the causes for some unusual recent movements in those trends. This is a pretty technical topic, but Eric's explanations are clear enough that everyone will be able to understand what's going on with this crucial subject. Stay with us. Okay, Eric Court from the University of Michigan, welcome to Resources Radio. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So Eric, we're here in my basement in Ann Arbor, and you and I have talked many times about methane and oil and gas, but it's great to do it uh, on the podcast here today. One of the things we always ask our guests is how they got interested in working on environmental topics, whether that interest developed as a kid or later in life. So how did you kind of get interested in all this stuff? Sure. This is definitely a later in life thing for me. Um, as a kid, I mostly was interested in sports. Academically, I got interested in physics, mostly because I liked solving problems. Um, I ended up going to graduate school, working in physics, doing laser physics and nanophotonics. And the application at that point was trying to make a terabyte DVD type technology. So it was very tech. And I wasn't that motivated by that. Um, and that was when I started to look, well, could I do something more applied or more useful? And that's when I discovered atmospheric science and was shocked coming from physics at how, how little we still knew about the atmosphere and climate and how much there still was to learn. And that really motivated me and, and was exciting for me. And energy science, I really only got into more recently through the atmosphere when we made methane observations and we were trying to understand why they looked the way they did. And it turned out the energy industry contributed. And so that's even more recent. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. I was also into sports as a kid and didn't get interested in anything else until later in life. Um, so we've done a couple shows uh, over the years on methane emissions. So our listeners have a pretty good understanding on, you know, what methane is and how it contributes to, to climate change. Um, but we haven't in a while talked about specifically methane from the oil and gas sector. So can you give us a crash course on what we know about the extent of the problem of methane emissions uh, from the U.S. oil and gas sector? And also, like, how much variation is there across different parts of the country? There's really been a tremendous amount of work done in the last about 15 years trying to improve our understanding of what is going on with methane emissions, specifically from oil and gas. The real focus has primarily been on onshore oil and gas and production in the U.S. The emissions from end-use distribution, that still has a lot more characterization to do. Um, for onshore production, the latest estimates put the loss rate or the methane intensity which is really the measure of how much methane is lost relative to the amount produced, is right at about 2.5% for production. Um, that's across the U.S. Uh, recent estimates suggest that that intensity has been declining a little bit over the years. Um, but there is tremendous variation across the production fields in the U.S. 
estimates in basins like the Permian Basin um, had estimates of methane intensities over 8% earlier uh, in the 2010s, whereas other basins like the Marcellus might be more like 1%. Um, there's a number of reasons for that. Um, somewhere like the Marcellus is a dedicated field primarily focused on natural gas, and so methane is the product, it's the commodity. A place like the Permian is focused a lot on oil, and the natural gas is kind of sometimes in the way. Uh, and so it makes sense that the loss rate would vary a lot. And actually, it's part of why I often say the loss rate is this simple metric, and people use it, or methane intensity, uh, but it doesn't capture the full story. And we're often trying to use actually carbon intensity now uh, as a way to capture what we think is more relevant for the broader climate discussion, which is what's the climate impact per unit of energy produced, whether that's natural gas or oil. And that intensity you're talking about, does that take into account sort of the full life cycle of the fuel? So methane emissions upstream and then CO2 emissions when you burn the fuel? Or are you just thinking about sort of process emissions and emissions associated with things other than combustion? So that can be done all along the life cycle chain. So when we're doing the calculations, we're actually using measurements to try to actually calculate what the carbon intensity is of the production. So considering the emissions of CO2 from the energy used to extract the oil or gas, as well as the methane lost in that process. Um, and then that could be combined. You could then follow it along and say, well, what's the end use uh, emission, you know, what's the, if you burn natural gas or if you burn gasoline in your car, so you can combine the whole thing. And so you can also then say, oh, the carbon intensity of production of this fuel in this place, it might be five or 10% of the total climate impact. Or in some cases where things might not be going well, it might be 50%. That's great. And that reminds me actually of a, an episode we did about a year ago with Debbie Gordon, who wrote a book um, called No Standard Oil, which um, which really helps us understand the different carbon intensities of different types of oils uh, around the world. So um, one thing I'd, I think our listeners would be really interested in hearing about, because many of us are economists and policy folks, and we're not necessarily out in the field, like measuring stuff the way that you are. So I'd love it if you could give us a sense on just like nuts and bolts, how does this work? Like how do people go out into the field to measure methane emissions? And then how do you work? What are the types of things that you and your group do um, that might be different from some what other groups do? There are a large number of ways people measure methane emissions from oil and gas facilities. Um, I won't go through in detail all of them, but just to briefly touch, I mean, I'd say it's ground, air, and space. So they're ground-based measurements, which can be stationary sensors. You can think of them as a little bit like your carbon monoxide detector in your house. They might put a number of them around a site and try to keep track of winds to quantify emissions. People can drive like a van essentially around to try to quantify. Um, there's a lot of airborne work done. Uh, that can be done really with two very distinct measurement types. One is you have a sensor that measures methane with great precision in the aircraft, and you draw air into the aircraft and measure it there, in which case you then have to fly that airplane near the facilities. You can either circle a facility or fly downwind, um, or you can use remote sensing, where you have an instrument that actually looks downward from the aircraft at the field below it, and looking at different wavelengths can actually detect if there's more or less methane and use that to calculate it. That actually method is then how things are done from space. So that aircraft remote sensing, you can imagine you can basically just get further away and do that same thing from space. The vast 
majority of the results of U.S. oil and gas methane studies in the last 12 or 15 years really focused on airborne measurements. Um, and a real mixture of measurements made from the remote sensing approach and the in-situ approach. Um, in more recent years, there's really been a growth in the satellite-based space, and more and more studies are using satellite measurements, and more and more satellites are coming online. My group tends to use mostly airborne and satellite measurements, so we, we work with both of those. Um, in a number of the studies we've done recently, we've done a lot of work with small aircraft and in-situ measurements, where we actually can take the aircraft and fly specifically around specific facilities, um, onshore or offshore, uh, to be able to quantify emissions or performance of those of those facilities. And so is it safe to say that you spend a lot of time in small airplanes flying around oil and gas fields? Uh, I'm chuckling partly because, uh, as your listeners can't see, but I'm rather tall and the aircraft can be quite small. And yes, uh, some of these aircraft, I when I get folded in, I don't need a seatbelt because I am, I'm wedged in. Um, I spend some time, and on these campaigns, I often will fly on the airplane in the early flights. Nowadays, a lot of the members of my research group really spend a lot of time on the aircraft, and they really do the bulk of the work there. Um, it, it can be quite fun and exciting. You need to have a solid stomach because the airplane is quite bouncy when you fly around there. Um, but I mean, it's part of what was the appeal for me actually into the field. So I always liked airplanes. And so it can be fun. And then scientifically, it's interesting too, because when you're in the airplane, you see the data real time. And so you can see things happening, which can be exciting. Yeah, that does sound super fun. I would love to do that someday, although I wouldn't be a good candidate because I have a weak stomach. <laughs> so I would probably, uh, that would not end well for me. So let's talk now a little bit about the the paper that you recently published in PNAS, uh, which of course we'll have a link to in the show notes. As you noted earlier, most of the research that's been done to date on oil and gas-related um, methane emissions have been from onshore sites, onshore fields like the Permian and the Marcellus. Um, but your paper is one of the first that gets out into the Gulf of Mexico and starts to really measure things offshore. So what are some of the most important things that you found um, in that work, and, and how do they differ, if at all, to the types of results that we're seeing uh, from onshore place? Yes. So this work is part of a larger study that's supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. Uh, we call it FUEL for short, where the F is cubed. So it's flaring and fossil fuels uncovering emissions and losses. Uh, and it had two components. It was really designed, we thought there were two focus points that we thought were largely understudied. One was natural gas flares and how effective their combustion is. It's a different conversation. And the other is offshore oil and gas, which really was out of sight, out of mind. And globally, about a third of the oil and gas in the world is produced offshore. So we really thought it was important to go and make these direct measurements. So as part of this study, we went to the Gulf of Mexico. We've actually done repeat visits now. Um, where we sampled with the small aircraft facilities, and we actually sampled across the range of types of facilities. And one of the best ways to characterize that in the Gulf is across depths. So from very shallow water state facilities, so in the state jurisdiction, to shallow water federal, to mid-depth, to very deep and ultra-deep facilities. Um, what we found was really fascinating. Um, we measured the emissions of, of methane, which is primarily a loss, um, unless it's intentionally vented. Um, still a loss, but it's intentional. Uh, and we also measured carbon dioxide and nitrogen oxides, so the combustion emissions from the facilities. For the most part, the combustion emissions reported by inventories tended to match quite well with what we saw in the observations. Um, 
That was not the case with methane, which is perhaps not a surprise and uh, aligns with onshore. But there was a really stark feature to this, which is it was really in the shallow waters that there was this gross discrepancy and where the very high methane emissions came from. Specifically, these facilities we kind of call central hubs, where there's a facility um, that has a lot of other activities besides just the production. Um, so there's a little bit of processing, a little bit of storage. Um, in shallow waters, these tend to be very horizontally built out, and then they have wells that are kind of drilled around it. Uh, it looks pretty different from the infrastructure you think of when you think of an offshore platform, you think of those big, modern, vertically built up facilities. So these shallow water central hubs is where we saw very high methane emissions. When we put all this together, what did that mean? Well, it meant as a whole, the Gulf of Mexico, the carbon intensity, right? So the amount of CO2 equivalent that's emitted per megajoule of energy produced is about twice what the inventory reports. It's still not a terribly high number for the Gulf. It's about five in these units. Um, but it was very drastically. So if you actually get into the state shallow water facilities, that number was something like 50, which is starting to approach what the end use impact is of burning natural gas um, to heat your home or something like that. So we're talking about rather than the intensity of production being you know 10% of the end use consumption, you're talking about it being 50% of the total climate impact, which is a huge huge difference and you know really could guide uh, how we decide to produce these things moving forward and shows the variance in climate impact that can be very large depending on how we produce these fuels, not just if we use them. I'm wondering also if it tells us anything about the types of operators who operate these facilities. Um, you know, the ultra deep water, deep water production, these are extremely, extremely sophisticated operations. You know, we're talking about the biggest oil and gas companies in the world and the service providers. Obviously, things do go wrong sometimes with them. I'm not trying to say they don't. But um, but in other you know studies that I've read and anecdotally I've heard, you know, the larger operators in some cases may be um, better at controlling their methane emissions than some of the smaller operators. Is there anything going on there? Like, are these onshore or close to onshore uh, hub facilities, do they tend to be operated by smaller operators? And are there any trends that we can discern from what you found about you know, performance from larger versus smaller companies? So that's a great question. Uh, we did not specifically break this down by company, uh, but there are a number of kind of correlated features that go along with depth, right? So the deeper water tend to be these big companies. They're, they're newer platforms too. The shallow water facilities tend to be much older. They tend to have changed hands of an ownership many times. Um, and they're just physically different infrastructure. Um, and much like, uh, what we see onshore actually, um, the older facilities that maybe have changed hands a lot might be places where you tend to see higher emissions. They also tend to produce a lot less oil and gas, you know, kind of per facility. It, the production volumes are massive in these deep water sites, um, and they tend to be much lower in these sites as well. Uh, but, you know, we also, as on the aircraft, we actually also had uh, an infrared camera imagery we would use to try to help identify, if we could, where the methane was coming from, from these facilities. 
And we're still working on classification, but it does seem to be the case that oftentimes these shallow water facilities are cold venting a lot. Um, what is cold venting? Uh, cold venting is a release of methane off of the facility. Um, why is it called cold venting? Is simply because actually historically in the offshore um, business, flares where you burn the gas at the end of the pipe and vents, the terms were used interchangeably to the extent that you know it went down a pipe and left. And whether there was a flame at the end or not wasn't really a detail that was paid a lot of attention to. So then Venton was renamed Cold Venton to specify that means it's not a lit flare. That's really interesting. I've been around this stuff a long time. I'd never heard the term cold venting. So one of the things that is an obvious next question is, you know, once these leaks are identified, how are they fixed? And with onshore oil and gas infrastructure, you know, this process is, is relatively straightforward. There are often tanks with valves that need to be replaced or, you know, other infrastructure that can be replaced relatively simply. I'm wondering if that process is more complicated offshore. Obviously, you're operating in a marine environment. Uh, the weather patterns are going to be different. Um, there might be corrosion associated with the salt water. So can you talk a little bit about the differences between fixing these problems onshore versus offshore? Yes. And I would say the, the first challenge onshore and offshore is you need to know you're emitting it and that you're emitting it at significant volumes. Um, and that's often a, a gap or a problem. And that's part of where observations and observation systems can really play an important role in identifying opportunities, which is what I view them as, to reduce emissions, and then ensuring that mitigation measures actually are effective. Based off what I just said, in some ways, a lot of the emissions we see that are coming from these cold vents, that's pretty much as easy to mitigate a problem as you could have, because you actually could, in many cases, with really minimal um, cost turn that into a flare. Now, you want to make sure your flare is burning efficiently. But frankly, even if it's burning pretty inefficiently, it's still a lot better than just directly venting it. Um, reducing how much gas is being put out, that cold vent, um, how technically feasible it is really depends on the circumstance at hand. But reducing that would also help a lot. You know, we don't know if it's the companies know that they're venting the magnitudes that they are. Um, it's actually not always easy to meter these things very accurately. You might not, depending on how much oil you produce, you may or may not be required to meter it. Um, and so, you know, it, it's not necessarily malicious. It could also be ignorance on that behalf. Um, offshore sounds more daunting in a lot of these regards. But, I mean, the deep facilities we measured also tended to emit very low amounts of methane compared to how much oil and gas are produced in those facilities. Um, so in some ways, that's also an illustration that in a facility that's, that's well-maintained and well-supervised, low emissions rates can be achieved. Um, and so that's what I would point to, to there. And I would finally say offshore in some ways is easier than onshore because it is, even in these shallow waters, far more concentrated in, in than it is onshore. I mean, there can still be thousands of platforms, but it's still more concentrated onto the platforms. Whereas, you know, on onshore, it can really become very messy in these oil and gas fields in the U.S. Yeah, that's a great point. And if anyone, you know, listeners have ever driven around, uh, you know, oil and gas fields in the Bakken or the Permian or elsewhere, I mean, you can just be surrounded as far as the eye can see by by oil and gas infrastructure. So, um, so that's a really good point. Um, Let's talk now uh, about policy for a second. And I know policy is not your, your main focus area, but um, can you give us just a general sense of, you know, what are the policies that are in place 
either at the, at the state or federal level to address these offshore methane emissions? You mentioned earlier some of the wells are in state jurisdictions, some are in federal jurisdictions. So EPA has you know methane regulations uh, that it enacts, and there's also a methane fee uh, that was passed as part of the I want to say Inflation Reduction Act, but I. Maybe it was one of the other ones. So can you just talk about that policy environment, uh, how it differs between state and federal jurisdiction, and then any other policy thoughts you might want to share? Yes. And this is a very dynamic and complicated space right now. I mean, there there's a lot of action at the federal level in terms of what might happen with methane, and a lot of that is still to be determined. Um, for the offshore, I think the first thing I would say is out of sight, out of mind is powerful. The offshore really is, it's out of sight, it's out of mind. And so for the most part, it has less scrutiny and less tight regulation than onshore. Um, it can be very hard to parse and figure that out, actually, because there's this complication. Is it federal water? Is it state water? Um, one example of out of sight, out of mind, early on when we were doing this work, we actually realized that the state water facilities the methane emissions from those facilities were not reported in any in inventory anywhere. They weren't in the federal inventory. They weren't in the state inventory. They were just missing. We also realized that the federal estimates of platform counts hadn't been updated in 10 years. So there, there's a lot of out of sight, out of mind here. A lot of these facilities could or should fall under what might come out of the various methane rules in the IRA bill. We need to really see how those get implemented. You know, there's, for example, there's this super emitter response program that says if a facility emits over 100 kilograms an hour and there's an observation of that, it needs to be addressed. It's still being determined how that would be implemented and how that would be used. A lot of facilities we observed were emitted over that threshold. Um, the big thing I say on this front is it's critical for the implementation of these things to succeed, for observations to be foundational in this. There needs to be support for measurements to be made to identify what's happening with emissions. If they continue to rely on reported emissions from a bottom-up accounting estimate from the industry, there will always be a gap that we continually see now, and we're not going to get at the big emitters and reduce them the way we want. The way some of the early draft language is written indicates there might be a pathway for observations to be there. There, As far as I know, there's no funded support for that. So I, I think that's still the critical gap. And it's really the implementation challenge here is how can there be a fund to support ongoing observations? And then how can those observations be used to ensure emissions are as low as everybody would like them to be? That's such a good point. And um yeah, I mean, it just reminds me of the adage that I've heard, like Mark Brownstein from EDF say a million times, which is what gets measured gets managed um, and seems like a crucial part of, of the policy response here. So we've been talking about oil and gas related methane emissions for the last 20 minutes or so, but I'd love for us to zoom out and think about methane emissions writ large. So methane emissions come from all sorts of other activities, landfills, uh, cows, as everybody famously knows, and, uh, and plenty of other sources, um, rice cultivation. You know, the trend in atmospheric methane concentrations has generally been going up for the last several decades, at least the data that I've seen. But there was this kind of interesting period between about 2000 and 2008 when methane concentrations were basically flat at a global level. And then they started resuming upward again after 2008. So can you help us understand just like the big picture trends in atmospheric concentrations of methane emissions 
and the contributors of those trends. So it's not just emissions that matter here, but it's also methane sinks. So I know this is a huge topic and really hard to summarize in um, in, in just a few minutes, but uh, I'd love for you to just try to give us a big picture sense of what's going on with concentrations. I'll do my best to be succinct. Uh, atmospheric methane to me is just fascinating. I mean, much like the other greenhouse gases, you know, in the last 150 years or so, we've seen this really accelerated growth and increase in these due to human activities. And as you said, for methane, those sources from human activities tend to be oil and gas, ruminants, which is really cows, agriculture, which is largely rice paddies, waste, so landfills, um, natural sources. The biggest one is really wetlands, which is the largest single source. Um, so pre-industrial methane levels in the atmosphere were about 750 parts per billion or so. Right now, we're at about 1,900, and we know that that increases because of the anthropogenic or the human emissions. Um, but methane got really kind of funky and interesting. In the 80s, it was growing rapidly in the atmosphere. That growth rate slowed in the 90s, and there was a lot of discussion about why that was. Um, changes, you know, geopolitical impacts on oil and gas infrastructure with like the Soviet Union being one, one speculated cause, changes in uh, precipitation in wetlands, and a lot of different theories and discussions about the different components. Then from about 2000 to 2007, atmospheric methane leveled off, and there was a lot of discussion of have we reached a new steady state. Um, and then in 2007, it started to grow again. And then actually within the last five years or so, it's so that 2007 is the kind of renewed growth. And, and now there's been kind of an accelerated growth, which is in the last five years or so, it's grown even more rapidly in the atmosphere. Uh, it's hard to pinpoint one single explanation or cause for any of this. You invoked that stability period to 2000-2007. There still isn't kind of a single cause, and it probably isn't a single cause. There's a number of factors that point to, you know, maybe some decreased wetland emissions and a little bit of a decrease in fossil emissions combined with a slight increase in atmospheric hydroxyl radical, which is the sink that removes methane. Not very well understood why it would have been a little bit elevated in that period, but some indirect proxies for that suggest it was. Um, the renewed growth then happened and we, we got back to growing. Um, and now the accelerated growth is the cause of where a lot of the studies and dynamic discussion is now is why is it accelerating and what is the cause? With, uh, I would say, the fear being that we're seeing carbon climate feedbacks where tropical wetlands are accelerating their emissions in response to a climate response. Um, at this point, kind of the the most common estimates for the renewed growth, accelerated growth in recent years is more based in the tropics and more biogenic. But whether that the relative contribution of kind of wetlands or ruminants and cows and waste is hard to disentangle at this point. Um, fossil emissions are definitely a part of all of this growth um, as well. I know that we could spend hours talking about uh, this issue of concentrations. Just one follow-up question on it. Which is, um, again, this might be an impossible question to try to answer, but when you are doing the science, trying to figure out what are the causes of the sources and sinks, what are some of the strategies that scientists use to make those distinctions, right? Are there like different chemical um, like formations that you're looking for, like different types of methane, basically, that can give you a signature about where this stuff is coming from? Uh, and And how do you like... How do you measure it? How do you think about it? I know we can't go deep on this, but I'd love just some examples maybe. I'll give a couple of frameworks. So th there's different ways one can try to partition, you know, how can we tell if methane is going up? What are the sources that are contributing? 
Well, one way is if we make an extensive set of spatial measurements, we can actually see, oh, there's this much coming from this oil and gas facility there. There's this much that's coming from this farm over here. There's this much from this landfill. And if we do that comprehensively, you can put the whole picture together. We haven't been able to do that comprehensively. We're getting better and closer with the satellite measurements. Um, but there's still a lot of challenges with it, right? You know, there's cows wandering around the oil and gas fields with the landfill in there, right? And so it's it's not perfect. But so one way is extensive spatial coverage and measurements to be able to actually quantify the, the different sources in that emissions. That's one approach to get at this problem. That's one way people try to tackle the problem. Another approach is to try to look at the the slightly different forms of methane that exist in the atmosphere. So the predominant form of methane is with carbon weight 12. Um, there's also a stable isotope weight 13, much less common. Um, and there's also radioactive uh, carbon 14, which decays away. Uh, a lot of work gets done with the stable isotopes, and there's also stable isotopes of hydrogen in there. Um, and essentially what happens is if the molecule weighs a little bit more or less, uh, it can have preference in different processes. So you can kind of imagine that if you're in a wetland, that the heavier and lighter molecules might have slightly different preference. And so that means when you look at the emissions of methane from like a wetland compared to emissions that come from a thermogenic source, so like oil and gas, the relative amount of C12 and C13 is different. Um, and so by measuring the isotopes of of methane, you can then try to say, oh, if we see a drift in the isotopic composition, that's driven by an increase of sources that fall on one side or the other. It's tricky because it means you need to know what the isotopic composition is of all of these different sources. There's the sink and there's what happens with that. And so it's not clean, but it's another element and bit of information. The radiocarbon I mentioned is actually the cleanest way to distinguish it because fossil sources are old and have no radiocarbon. All of the biogenic sources are new and have some radiocarbon. So it's actually a pretty clean distinguisher between thermogenic and biogenic. Problem there is to make one measurement of radiocarbon methane requires you to fill like a scuba tank with air and it's extremely expensive. And so th those measurements are limited, though there's a big effort underway now actually to try to expand those measurements to really help tighten our constraint on what is going on with future trends in that global growth rate. That's so interesting. And um, and I'm impressed that you can explain it as well as you can, because I understood that and I don't understand a lot about science. So uh, Eric, let's go now to our last question that we ask all of our guests, which is um, to recommend something that's at the, the top of your literal or your metaphorical reading stack. And um, I see that you've brought something that is big and blue and looks like a lot of fun. So tell us about your recommendation. Sure. Yeah, I, I brought it here to show your listeners. Uh, it's, you know, I was excited to actually bring this because... I have two young children. I have a five-year-old and a three-year-old. And a lot of my reading time is reading with my, my kids. Uh, and I like to introduce different concepts to them that are really at their level. And I've really enjoyed this book. So this is a children's book that I brought. It's called Here We Are, Notes for Living on Planet Earth uh, by Oliver Jeffers. Uh, and I found this to be a really nice introduction that's really appropriate for quite young children to, to the concept of, you know, we're living on a planet in a solar system. It's a shared planet. You know, we, we use all these resources. We've learned a lot of things and developed a lot, but there's still a lot to be done to move forward. And, and it 
kind of presents a lot of these concepts that touch upon, you know, living uh, in a community, sustainability, uh, working with the planet. A lot of that is touched upon very indirectly in a way that I think um, translates to to young children. So I've really enjoyed this book. So so anyone with with young children, it's uh, I would recommend it. That's fascinating. I think I'm going to pick one up for my four-year-old, who I, I think will absolutely love it. Well, um, one more time, Eric Court from the University of Michigan, thank you so much for coming on the show and helping us understand so much about methane in, in such a small amount of time. We really appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future, or RFF. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me. Daniel Raby. Join us next week for another episode.